Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Chart music. Hey up you pop crazed youngsters and welcome back to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that reaches down the back of the settee of old episodes of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always I have two very special guests who know what the fuck they're talking about when it comes to music. And the first of which is the return of Taylor Parks. Taylor, how are you sir? Too early to say. (laughs) I I should give you my very best. Good skills. Anything interesting and fascinating in your sparkly pop music journalist life of late? No. Okay, let's move on. Our third opinion is provided by someone making his chart music debut, Simon Price. Hello, Simon. How are you? Hello, I'm very excited about this. That's how I am. Another Melody Maker veteran. Yeah, you know, that's it. You know, um, NME veterans have got proper jobs in the media. They're basically running the media. So, you know, Melody Maker... um, uh, alumni like me and Taylor just washing around uh, social media, uh, yeah. you know, waiting for anybody to take our opinions even vaguely seriously. Oh, so wow. that's how you managed to get us so easily. Well, here we are. This is this is your home for as long as you like. Ah, oh, bless you. So, Simon, as always, when we have a new guest on, we ask two questions. Number one, when did you start watching Top of the Pops? Um, do you know what? My earliest really vivid memories of watching it would have been around the time of stuff like Staying Alive by the Bee Gees and Donna Summer, I Feel Love, that kind of disco era. But because um, I didn't really grow up in a sort of top of the pops household, my mum wasn't really into it. Um, and, uh, you know, my parents divorced when I was five. Um, actually, my parents divorced around about the time of the episode we're about to watch. So all kinds of bleak. Oh, me- nice. Yeah, how bleak, how bleak do you want it? Um, but... Um, <laughs> In terms of uh, yeah, watching it, that that would have been a sort of disco era, but but fleetingly before that, so it's almost a sort of a ghost memory I have of the, you know, early seventies, yeah. and the one we're about to watch is like right on the brink, on the sort of horizon of what I can and can't remember. Excellent. And the next question is, when did you stop watching Top of the Pops? I was there, I uh, guess. Well, I, I watched the very last one um, when Jimmy Savile turned out the lights, which. Uh, that's that. That's a phrase I used. On a, <laughs> that's a phrase I, I once used on another podcast and got told off for saying possibly the darkest sentence ever uttered. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I've, I remember the, the the last one being being um, really sort of faintly tragic. The the way that um, Shakira and Wyclef Jean couldn't even be bothered turning up. It was just a video because that's how low yeah. that's how low the stock of the show had fallen at that point. But um, I, I guess I stopped watching it week in week out. Um, when Britpop went to shit, you know, around the end of Britpop, mm. uh, when my job was no longer, um, you know, keeping up to date with what was going on every single week, I'd quit Melody Maker to write a book. So we're talking about 97, I suppose, that I sort of took yeah. my eye off the ball and stopped bothering so much. I mean, for the both of you, how important was Top of the Pops while you were actually working at, at, at the Maker? 
Yeah, it was dying really. Occasionally, you'd be sent there uh, if you were doing an interview or something. I'll oh, go down to the top of the pops with the band, and yeah, it 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 never lived up to even your, your lowest expectations. Really. Oh, you've just, been there then? Yeah, when it was at Elstree a couple of times. But all it was was a, a much smaller crowd of kids than it looked mm. on the telly being shunted from one corner of a studio to another by a grumpy floor manager telling them to uh, look out for the swinging crane camera. And, yeah, it was it, it, the music sounds terrible when you're in there because it's coming through these crappy little speakers and stuff. Um, drummers miming with pads on the drums. There's terrible dull thud. It's, uh, yeah, it's a. That pretty much sums up Britpop, though, doesn't it? A terrible dull thud. Yeah, but you see, I, I, I'm fairly certain that in 1973, this is not what it was like, and it actually was the best party that anyone had ever been to. Is, Taylor's absolutely right. I went there myself uh, once with the band, the now forgotten band, These Animal Men, who um, bundled me into the boot of their car because they didn't have enough passes <laughs> to get me in. And like, bearing in mind, you know, they were all about reenacting punk and bearing in mind what the Stranglers used to do to journalists in the back of, in the boots of cars. I was taking my life in my hands there, but um, it was all a bit sort of tawdry and pathetic when I actually got inside there. Um, I've got very little memory. I think Oasis might have been on the show, but the thing I remember most was Reel to Reel featuring the Mad Stunt Man, and it was it wasn't even it wasn't even I like to move it. It was the crap oh, no. follow up, whatever that was called. So so yeah, absolutely. It you know it was not this kind of golden promised land that you thought it was going to be. What what's it like watching people mime? I suppose um, I was conditioned, having watched Top of the Pops growing up, that. Uh, when you go and see a band live, that's what you get, that they sound absolutely perfect. Mm. So, in a way, a better question is, what's it like being 13 years old and seeing the first live gig and it sounds shit? Yeah. You know? <laughs> that it sounds nothing like the record. Because, in a way, Top of the Pops is in your head. That's what, how things are meant to what sound. What it's like watching people mime is, uh, it's like what it's like watching it from your sofa, but <laughs> less comfortable. But I, also, I was going to say about uh, being at Melody Maker in the 90s, um, I, I was there a little bit um, before Taylor joined, and um, at that point, before Britpop had really started taking off, it was such a novelty to even see any of our bands on the show. Yeah. You know, um, we're talking about that kind of lull after, sort of, between Live Aid and Britpop, where um, really stuff that's on top of the pops is mainly kind of dance records or novelty tracks. And things coming from what you might call the alternative sector very rarely made it on. When they did, like the famous one with Happy Mondays and Stone Roses, yeah. um, it was it was a real kind of, you know, I'm not going to say water cooler moment because we live in a cold climate. I'll say a kettle moment, you know, <laughs> sort of t- a tea urn moment. But um, yeah, it was, it was really quite a rarity. So I guess... Uh, we got a bit spoiled around the Britpop time because week in, week out, our bands, in inverted commas, were rocking up to Top of the Pops. Yeah. So, for this episode, we're going right back to November the 5th, 1973, which is supposed to be the pinnacle of the glam era. In the news, Prime Minister Edward Heath admits in an interview that petrol rationing might have to be introduced due to the miners' strike. Ten people are injured in a bomb blast in Belfast. An animal protection group win a court case to ban the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders from wearing badgers' heads on their sporans. Scotland draw one all with West Germany in a friendly, but the big news this week is that Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips are pissing off on their honeymoon. 
That that list basically sounded like um, uh, the lyrics to the song "The Osmonds" by Denim. If you know that, it's basically that. It's this sort of you know this this litany of, of just grim things happening, grim things happening, and other people living in unimaginable luxury. Yes, yeah. I mean, do you remember anything about that wedding? Because uh, I I can't remember us having a street party or anything like that. No, not for that one. My street went mental for the Queen's Silver Jubilee and then four years later for Charles and Di. But no, I don't remember that one at all. Taylor, any recollection? Of 1973, um, I was adopted, which was good for me because <laughs> it meant I didn't have to grow up in a 1970s children's home. So on the cover of the NME is Greg Lake. And this will be the last enemy of 1973 because there was a nine-week printer strike. The number one LP is Pinups by David Bowie. In the US, the number one is Keep On Trucking by Eddie Kendricks. And the number one LP in America is Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. So the glam era had a bit of a renaissance with the, the Simon Reynolds book, Shock and Awe. Yeah, and I think um, one thing that Simon did really well was to highlight that there are these two strands of glam. There's this real kind of... Um, almost working men's club um, British cabaret um, strand of, of glam uh, which is represented quite strongly in the, in the show yes. uh, we're about to watch um, and then there there is the real kind of magical otherworldly uh, sort of top level of glam and you know of kind of art glam as well um, and both going hand in hand I think you know it, it wasn't as if you had to sort of embrace one and reject the other so what else was on telly on that day? Well, BBC One's already had Pebble Mill at one, live from Heathrow Airport to watch Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips go on the honeymoon. Uh, and there's been another chance just before this show to see Raymond Baxter in China on Tomorrow's World. BBC Two has a programme about people protesting against a ring road in York. And on ITV, Bungle and Jeffrey have been pretending to be squirrels on Rainbow and they're currently showing the Sammy Davis Jr. film The Pigeon. Not a lot of competition tonight, I feel. It's a kind of um, animal transvestitism, isn't it? Getting like, so Bungle's a bear pretending to be a, a squirrel. Yes. And what, you've got, I can never work out what George is. George is a cow or a hippo. It's a hippo. It's a hippo. It's, it looks really cow-like, but it's kind of pink. And then you've got, you've got wherever the fuck, you know, Zippy is. Yeah. I guess in a way it ties in with the spirit of glam that you can be what you want to be. You can just morph yes. into something that, that you weren't born to be. You can wear a really cheap bear suit. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to Top of the Pops. So the theme tune, Whole Lot of Love, the CCS version, the, as we've already established, the Top of the Pops theme tune. And we've got a nice bit of an opening credit kind of thing going on there, haven't we? Yeah, the shots of USAF bombers is yes. just what, what rock and roll is all about to me. And <laughs> an egg, also an egg and a dartboard. It yes. says it all. Yeah. It's kind of sexy futurism. It's, kind of, it's sort of Goldfinger meets Barbarella going on with, with, with the painted ladies and all this kind of stuff. And you've got that mixed with this kind of childlike psychedelia that's going on as well. I'm, I'm really I'm really fascinated by this idea that um, decades actually happen 10 years later than we think they did. And, you know, in a lot of ways, psychedelia didn't really hit Britain until about 1973. When you look at the opening credits of, uh, of, of Top of the Pops and, and the chart countdown, 
and these crazy animations you know it's 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 like you know never never mind you know i don't know um yellow submarine or and certainly never mind the grateful dead the, probably the first time that british children would have seen anything kind of you know a bit mind frazzling and psychedelic would have been this um and I, I actually looked it up. It was the, the animations. I, I'm guessing were done. The, the the guy at the end of the credits, who's who's uh, uh, you know the uh, the designer, a guy called Steve Brownsey, and he he did among other things. He he did both Crackerjack and Spike Milligan's Q9. So that's it's a kind of combination of those two things. I think you know. <laughs> Even the sexual revolution didn't really happen in the 60s. It didn't really sort of get going until no. the kind of swinging suburbia of the 70s when, when the contraceptive pill was more widely prescribed. And um, I, I think what happened was that people who grew up in the 60s, who were sort of, you know, hippie teenagers, were now starting to be in charge of things. And I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if Top of the Pop Steve Brownsey was a bit of a bit of an old head, you know. Mm. I've, for example, recently I've... I've, I've uh, befriended the guy who was Yoffy on Fingerbobs. No, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On on Facebook and on Twitter, he's a lovely fella. Um, he's about eighty oh. now, but he was in um, a country rock band called Meal Ticket, who were never never really made it, but they were on uh, Whistle Test a couple of times. And I think all these people who were sort of running children's telly, they were all. If if you just look look in look in Carol Chell's eyes, you're not telling me she's never dropped a tab once in a while, you know, and um. I, I really think there's a lot of that. We we all had teachers at school. You must have had teachers yeah. at school who, like infant school, who are maybe about, let's say, 26 years old and looked a bit like Joan Baez. And yes. they had these kind of very well-meaning ideas about teaching you to kind of open your minds and pretend to be a tree and that kind of stuff. Oh, yes. And I think that generation was starting to get a foothold in the British media and British telly. It's nothing like nothing like an English teacher just trying to crowbar in Bob Dylan's lyrics. Like, yeah, yeah, but what about this? So the host of this episode is Tony Blackburn, the former lead singer of Tony Blackburn and the Rovers in the early 60s. He joined Radio Caroline in 1964. He moved to the BBC in 1967, and of course he was the first DJ ever to be heard on Radio 1. By this time, he's established as a as a Top of the Pops host. Um, a few weeks later, after this uh, episode of Top of the Pops, the pantomime he was in was interrupted by a power cut due to the miners' strike. And the next day on air, he told the miners to go back to work. Uh, then he got a bollocking by the BBC management, and he was suspended for two weeks. Typical left-wing BBC, isn't it? <laughs> The thing is, dis- despite his somewhat fascist politics in that incident, I think we'd all Steady have to on. agree that <laughs> I think I think we'd all have to agree that 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 Blackburn has kind of become rehabilitated uh, of late, almost almost by default, almost as a kind of side effect of of Utree. That yes. at least he wasn't one of that lot. He He's certainly clean. had. Yes. He had a lot of sex with a lot of women, but they were all overage, as far as anyone knows. Um, and also, I, I just remember, you know, in, in the 80s, he was the easy target. He was the stuff of bad alternative comedians going sensational and that kind of stuff. You know, he is the ultimate cheesemeister. But I, I think there's something quite likeable about the, the sheer simplicity of, of his kind of enthusiasm for for pop. And, and famously, he's a big fan of soul music as well, genuinely. So he, know, he knows his stuff. So, yes. you know, I've kind of warmed him lately. I don't know about you guys. He's always... You're right, Simon. He has been seen as a bit of a gurning, smiling idiot. But, you know, there's a part of me that's got a, a soft spot for him as well, I have to say. Taylor? Well, he likes being an idiot. He does it deliberately. I mean, he he almost certainly mm. is an idiot, but he enjoys being an idiot. He, he uses it in a provocative way. 
he likes nothing but and this has always been the case he likes nothing better than to wind up people who uh take idiots too seriously um that that's his shtick it always has been um so why he used to love winding up john peel and stuff you know and uh to be fair peel uh kind of took it in the spirit in which it was intended but a lot of people don't and uh Never have done. Mm. If you read his first autobiography, because <laughs> Poptastic, no, 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 Poptastic. Oh, no. second autobiography. It's toned down a bit. If you read his first one, um, called "The Living Legend," ooh, um, it's <laughs> it's really something. And uh, it's there's the trouble is he kind of shoots himself in the foot because he he goes on about, oh, well, there are all these screaming girls, and he, he does it all in a very self-deprecating, kind of self-mocking way, until it gets to the bit where um, he gets dumped by Tessa Wyatt, and mm. uh, she runs off with Richard O'Sullivan, and uh, he starts going, well, yeah, I, I thought the scripts for this programme, Robin's Nest, were not very funny, and I made a point of telling her so, <laughs> um, and suddenly completely loses his self-awareness. <laughs> And he starts talking really indignantly about the disgraceful behaviour about when he was at a Radio 1 roadshow and a load of lads in the front row started chanting, Robin's Nest, Robin's Nest, Robin's Nest. <laughs> um, and you just you lose all sympathy for him. Um, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, nobody's got a recording of the, the morning when he uh, implored Tessa Wyatt to come back to him live on Radio 1. Um, it's a, it's a, it's like almost like an urban legend because nobody's ever heard it, or you know, there doesn't seem to be an archive recording of it. But I would pay, I would. Well, pay yes, for that. God, yes. And for all the kind of rampant egotism and the sort of accidental partridge of his autobiography, um, I think it probably stands up better to modern scrutiny than Ed Stewart's uh, autobiography, yes. which is let. Oh, that I mean, you want to talk U Tree? Have a look at that. Um, but also, you know, you mentioned John Peel just then. John Peel's been on the uh, the 80s repeats of Top of the Pops on BBC4 a lot lately. And I've got to say, at the time, I thought, yeah, he's great. He's taking the piss out of it all. He's one of us. Now, I just find it incredibly aggravating. I just think, oh, just, t- just, just lay off it, will you? You know, when I watch Peel. Whereas I don't get that with Blackburn. I think, you know, he, he is what he is. And, and there's something really likeable about that kind of genuine love of cheese and pop, you know. So anyway, at this point in Tony Blackburn's career, he's just been demoted from the breakfast slot and been replaced by... Edmonds. Noel Edmonds? Noel Edmonds. So he's now on the 9-12 to slot on Radio 1, so he's been relegated. And there was always a great deal of enmity between Blackburn and Edmonds, wasn't there? I don't know whose side I'd have been... I've definitely been on Team Blackburn there, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, because when um, when Tony Blackburn was at Caroline, uh, Noel Edmonds came on and uh, apparently uh, Tony Blackburn fronted him up and said, there's only room for one person to do corny jokes on this station. <laughs> It'd be like having to vote for Nicholas Sarkozy to, to stop Le Pen getting in or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> But he's very nicely turned out in this show. He's got a nice blue gingham shirt on. He's He looks of the time without being too flamboyant. It's really, it's a cheesecloth shirt. Gingham yes, is, it is. Uh, smaller checks. You should know this, Al. Yeah, I know I should. I know I should. Yeah. I, was, I was torn between the two on my notes and I, I went for gingham and that was wrong. And I apologise. Yeah. Cheesecloth. The interactions between Blackburn and the girls around him, 
it's kind of awkward and stilted, and you know, there's no rapport there. But at least you think they're safe in his company. Yeah, at least he's got his hands you know I mean? to himself. Yeah, they look bored, which is, you know, at least well, that's fine. That's okay. Yeah, well, I'll take that. Hello, hi, welcome to Top of the Box. So, photographed by Ringo Starr. This is the third top ten hit in a row, after it Don't Come Easy and Back Off Boogaloo. And it's the lead single from his new LP, Ringo, which was written with George Harrison on a yacht in the south of France. Cilla Black was a guest on the yacht at the time and wanted to record the song, but Ringo told her to bollocks. It's up to number eight from 13. And uh, the only other interesting thing about this song is a single cover, which is Ringo inside a massive silver star looking like a hairy Maggie Simpson. <laughs> this was just before they ran out of steam. This was sort of like the last gasp of beetle juice. You know, this was, mm. um, they sort of had enough, after they split up, they sort of had enough in the tank for maybe one more album. Um, mm. If you look at all the solo stuff, you could, you could, I mean, except that all the Lennon stuff is totally unsuitable because he was, you know, singing about his mum and stuff. It, uh, yeah. so it wouldn't have, yeah. But in terms of actual musical invention, they kept going for about another another year or two before it all ran dry. There's plenty mm. of good stuff. But, but this is possibly the last great solo Beatles single apart from, you know, the, you can make an argument for a few of those Wings records, but, I don't think any of them are as good as Photograph, quite honestly. Right. I mean, I'm I'm not a, I'm not a Beatles person, um, you know, particularly at all, to be honest. Um, but even I will say that Photograph by Ringo Starr is just a fantastic record. It really is. If you just listen to the sound of that, the way it chimes and then builds upon those chimes, it's it's just huge. I could really imagine somebody, you know, in the '90s, like Teenage Fan Club, having done a cover version of it and probably not doing it justice. But it's that mm. kind of sound, if you know what I mean. Yeah. An interesting fact about John Lennon that's rarely mentioned is that at the age of 40, he didn't believe in evolution. Um, he said, why aren't monkeys turning into men now? Makes, makes you think, doesn't it? <laughs> Perhaps he was talking about the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> so, as is the want of Top of the Pops in the early 70s, we have a, a, a tune playing and uh, it's interspersed with the chart rundown and shots of the audience dancing, which is extremely school disco, isn't it? You can tell the professional dancers are a mile off, can't you? Yeah. It's that the the this was back in the days when British people, if a camera was on them, were tremendously self-conscious, rather mm. than you know launching into their tap routine or whatever. Mm. You know, well, they they sort of oh, a little bit embarrassed. Oh, yeah, you can you can tell the people who are kind of self-possessed and you know got the steps down. I miss that don't you you know when, yeah. when Vox Pops would stop people in shopping centres yes. and you could tell that you know they were just dying to blurt something out quickly and get away from the camera which is completely the opposite of how things are now yeah like on That's Life in particular yeah so the chart rundown it's a bit tasty isn't it there's some huge names in there there's The Who Slade there's two Bowie songs Wink Martindale sorry Yes, Wink, Martindale, Perry Como, Max Bygraves. This is what I spotted. 
it's the height of glam. You've got all these huge glam artists. But yeah, there's also this kind of um, very strong undercurrent of, you know, granddads and grandmas easy listening music, isn't there? Will Tuppers and Shunters music, yeah. yeah. Michael Ward. Wink Martindale and Max Bygraves have recorded the same song, Deck of Cards. Uh, what? Oh, my God. So yes. yeah, and, and who who was Michael Wall? Who Michael who was Ward? That? Michael Ward was a was a boy soprano uh, who did religious tunes and stuff. I mean, this is this would have been an early Christmas release, I'd have thought. Uh, aimed, so kind of Ali Jones mm, of his day. Yeah, yeah, aimed squarely <laughs> between the eyes of your gran. There's <laughs> <laughs> an image to conjure with. <laughs> so the song dropped two places the following week. However, it got to number one in America late that month and went platinum. Ringo would have two more hits in 1974 and then wasn't heard from again until Weight of the World got to number 74 in 1992. (laughs) And, of course, obligatory mention for Thomas the Tank Engine. But don't send anything to get him autographed because he's had enough of that now. Yes, yes, we won't. We won't send him this podcast. There it is, that's the brand new top 30 there, and we have five new entries, and what after the, the fantastic wedding yesterday. Who went to see the wedding? You did? Yeah. Where were you? I was staying outside the palace. Well, yeah, fine. So it's great that you had time to cut, drop along and see us tonight. Fabulous, and uh, as I said, we've got some really fa- marvellous records for you to see right now, and uh, this one has gone straight in. In fact, at number 27, it's called My Cuckoo, and it comes from Alvin Stardust. Tony asks a girl if she went to the royal wedding while a Herbert in a tank top tries to get into shot. And we're introduced to Alvin Stardust, or Bernard Jury, as his original name. Born in London, moved to Mansfield as a child. He was working as a roadie for Shane Fenton and the Fentones, who sent a demo tape off to the BBC in the early 60s. The band was about to split up when the lead singer died, but the BBC invited them onto a TV show. So Bernard was asked to be Shane Fenton, and they went on to have a few minor hits. In 1973, the songwriter Peter Shelley released My Cuckoo under the name Alvin Stardust and appeared on the TV kids' show Lift Off with A'Shea. The song rocketed up the charts, but he didn't want to promote it anymore, so he asked Marty Wilde, who turned it down. Then he asked Bernard Stroke Shane, who was working as a band manager at the time, to be Alvin Stardust, and thus a star is born. I mean, this is how you introduce yourself on Top of the Pops, isn't it? It's amazing. It's just, uh, I, I love this song. It's sinister, very thin, but with a massive head, <laughs> further, further elongated with hair, with this quiff, mm. inviting you to have sex on his mat. It's... Uh, <laughs> Mike microphone held sideways to his mouth in in time honoured pornographic box cover pose. Um, it's yeah. it, visibly old, Grecian two thousand. It's it, it's there's a sort of voodoo about this. It's the I, I, this it's just one this is one of the best top of the pops clips of all time. I think it is. It's an I, incredible I, record. It's just a fantastic piece of music, even though he's not on it. And yeah, Taylor's right. It's sinister, uh, partly because he doesn't move. He's just stood there yeah. stock still in this weird kind of slightly awkward side-on pose. Wearing this, I mean, these black latex gloves. People say it's leather, but you, you look, it's just, where did you even get black latex gloves in 1973? I have no idea. Well, 
there's a there's a tale behind that. According to an interview that he gave a few years ago, uh, the night before he went on top of the pops, he decided to dye his blonde hair black the night before, and he ended up staining the sides of his face and his hands. So the next morning, he got some sideburns fitted at a theatrical wig makers, and then nipped across the road to a women's boutique and bought some black gloves. Brilliant. And that is fucking amazing, isn't it? <laughs> By the way, the Taylor saying, you know, that Alvin Stardust looks old there. Um, you could probably see where I'm going with this, but he certainly had a, mm. he must have had a tough paper round. Because how old do you reckon he was? If we just ask the listeners to this, just to sort of pause for a second, look at Alvin Stardust doing my Kukachu and decide how old he was, right? He was. Well, I, I know. Yeah, you know, he was 31 years old, right? Yes. Now, I don't know about you. I was quite baby-faced at 31 still. Uh, all right, um, a lot of the hair had gone, but I still had, you know, taut, stretched skin across my bones. You know what I mean? Mm. He looks, I mean, he looks like he's been down the coal mine for 31 years, never mind being alive for 31 yeah. years. That, that's what growing up in Mansfield in the 50s and 60s does for you, mate. Absolutely. And I, I like that. I, you know, um, I like the fact that glam rock was teen-oriented, but it wasn't of teenagers. It wasn't made by teenagers. No. That's the kind of odd thing about it. And I also love how the, the guys in his band in, in their pink tops that say Alvin yes. Stardust, they technically, those guys are pop stars in this moment. And, you know, uh, their children can look back and say, yeah, my, my dad was a pop star. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're, they're just sort of British 70s egg and chips with HP sauce filth. You know what I mean? But it's they with that with the pink t-shirts and everything it just it it sort of uh, undermines them and accentuates alvin's default alpha status um is, is this sort of curdled elvis but he he is kind of sexy the fact that he's old if if you had a young beautiful man doing this it'd still be a great record but it'd be a completely different kind of record because the sort of earthiness and the oiliness of this is uh there's nothing naive or elfin about this motherfucker, yeah. right? It's like he looks like he can fix machinery and and yeah. punch people in the eye with rings on. You know what I mean? There's a sort of a, <laughs> there's a when he said when he wants you to have sex on his mat, it like he, he he might not be a very giving lover, but at least he'll mean it. <laughs> yeah, and I think is it the first time that the word flat has been used. In a rock and roll song? Oh, instead of apartment or whatever, yeah. Yeah. It could be. Yeah, it's not his pad, is it? It's very much a flat. No, it's his flat. Definitely. <laughs> and there's there's an amazing um, bit of footage, because when, when, um, when, when he dies, I wrote a piece, sort of obituary piece about him for The Guardian, and uh, I, I found this, this clip of him uh, on the Wheel Tappers and Shunters yes. show. And it's just <laughs> Which I watched just before this. Did you? So, it's incredible, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's, he's wearing, I mean, if, if memory serves, some kind of brown checked um flared outfit but it's just yeah. the most it's it's the most british thing that's ever happened and he's given it the full elvis 68 comeback special but in in the context of all these women who look like the front row of itv wrestling it's extraordinary <laughs> yes. it's absolutely amazing another thing about my kukachu it's it's a, a rare example of uh, somebody's best known song being not their biggest hit. Jealous Mind. Yeah. Jealous Mind actually got to number one. Mike Ugachu didn't. Yes. But most people could not sing you Jealous Mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always thought Mike Ugachu was number one. Yeah. It should have been. I mean, to me, this is man glam, isn't it? It's it's, uh, it's early 70s British suburban blues, right? In that the, yes. the, it's like, 
in the same way that the simplicity of blues allowed something to come across about, you know, life in the Delta and then Chicago, <laughs> you know, life in the cities of Chicago. This tells you everything you need to know about life in the suburbs of, of cities of Britain in the early 70s. Um, the Mansfield Delta. Yeah, and it, it, it out comes so, the soul or whatever is there instead of soul. You know what I mean? It's mm. that same channel to 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 something genuine through the the uh, ludicrous artifice, but it it works. All this Andy helped you cross the road. Yes, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it, isn't it interesting that um, the sonic palette of glam is kind of the same from the most bass to the most kind of high flown? Because if you look at something like Gene Genie by Bowie, and you know, Mike Hukachu by Alvin Stardust. There's not a lot between it. And then in the middle, mm. 50-50 in between, you've got Blockbuster by a suite. Yeah. You know, and I guess it's it's all rooted in in uh, uh, Spirit in the Sky. But yes, it, you know, exactly, yeah. it, uh, it, And, it, you know, it, it all led on to Goldfrapp and all that business. But I, I just find it really interesting that, you know, Bowie's there... Um, being this sort of sexy alien, and then Alvin Stardust is taking you back to his flat and his mat, and it sounds right. the same. Yeah, but this is because it's this is a, a, a demonic Englishness. It's like um, you know, David Bowie was uh, was some going somewhere else with this, you know, whereas Alvin Stardust was going deeper into his own Englishness until he finds the essential satanic core of Englishness, <laughs> the sort of uh, demonic power of uh, old England. It's uh, excellent. So my Kukachu jumped up to number eight the following week and then up to number two, only held off the top spot by the current number one. And he spent eight weeks in the top five. The follow-up, My Genus Mind, got to number one in February of 1974 and he had three other hits that year. Um, he kind of like petered out and ended up taking the wheel tappers route, but he made a comeback on stiff records in the early 80s and he died at the age of 74 in 2014. Marty Weil, as a side note, did try to get on the bandwagon later on when he changed his name to Zappo with limited success. He really fucked up there, didn't he? <laughs> Could have been Alvin Stardust. He missed the trick, but then I guess he passed the torch down to his daughter. She did all right. Yes, she did, yeah. That's Alvin Stardust here. But it seems at the moment that any Osman record that comes out is automatically a hit. We've got little Jimmy Osman, we've got Cy, Donny Osman, <gasps> Donny Osman, and the Osmonds, of course, they make hit records. Oh, and now, believe it or not, we've got Marie Osman with a number called Paper Roses. <laughs> Tony Blackburn is refraining from cramming young girls into his face and introduced Paper Roses by Marie Osmond. Marie Osmond is obviously the only daughter in the Osmond family and in the early 70s she was encouraged to join her brothers on stage and then she decided to be a little bit country. This is a cover of a 1968 Anita Bryant tune and it was the number one country song in America and it had got to number five on the Billboard Hot 100. She just turned 14. This is what blew my mind as well, because when she first appears on the screen, there's a split second where I thought, is that a guy? Is it a drag queen or something? Such, <laughs> is the, the, such is the size of her hair and the thickness of her fake eyelashes. I'm oh, guessing they're, they're amazing, fake aren't they? Yeah, yeah. 
It's really quite something. Do you know what? And until we were going to do the show, and I had to do a bit of research into it, I honestly wasn't sure if Marie Osmond was Donny Osmond's sister or his missus. I, I, <laughs> I, and and in a way that kind of sums up the the, the creepy vibe that the Osmonds gave off. There's there's that series now on Channel Four, <laughs> Three Wives, One Husband, about you know um, uh, polygamy in in the Mormon community in Utah, and when you watch that stuff, and it really is quite bleak. Um, it, it gives it gives you quite quite an insight into what's what's underlying this this whole squeaky clean um, Osmond's facade. She looks like a more waspy Selena Gomez, um, which is not right. not at all how I remember Marie Osmond. One of my first memories is the Donnie and Marie show on TV, yeah, which I guess was a few years after this. Uh, and I just remember as being this kind of bland tooth. I basically I. I couldn't remember what she looked like, so I was my memory was giving me Donny Osmond in a wig. Right, she right. She, she doesn't look like Donny Osmond. And the in a song wig. is actually uh, the song's quite like that stuff we were talking about from the opening credits, isn't it? It's grandma music. Yes, it's total kind of um, British working men's club version of country and western. That's the kind yes. of stuff that prob- probably to this day you would walk into, you know, a provincial. Um, club where older people drink and hear that song the other thing about this film is that marie osmond's microphone is fucking massive isn't it well they all are in this i noticed this that um so there's a few enormous microphones later it might just be that they had tiny pop stars in those days yeah it's like people grew up in rationing or something they weren't (laughs) weren't full size it's hard to... Well, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, Alvin Stardust and his massive head. It's just scale, isn't it? It's like, it's like the thing on Father Ted, you know, these ones are small, those ones are far away. It's hard to find very much to say about this record because it's almost designed to be as nondescript as possible. So Yeah, that, wash over you. Yeah. yeah, so as little as possible can be said about it. It's like God wants it to be that way, you know. Do you know what she does now, Marie Osmond? Uh, she makes dolls. Quite, yes, she does. Quite macabre. Yeah, and sells them on QVC. Okay, that's, yeah, that's she makes less... dolls look exactly like herself with big kind of wobbling heads. <laughs> you know, a bit, a bit like that. A bit like the doll that um, Steve Martin has on his dashboard of his of his dead wife in The Man with Two Brains. That's <laughs> how I'm picturing it. All across Utah, people are going missing, to- unexplained disappearances. Just saying. <laughs> so the next week, this song rocketed up to number three. Uh, got as far as number two, again held off the top spot by this week's number one. Uh, the follow-up single, In My Little Corner of the World, flopped in the UK, but then Marie would team up with Donny for a string of top 30 hits until 1976, uh, by which time they had their own TV show. And uh, did you know that Marie Osmond is one of the few pop stars quoted in Civilization Six? When you discover iron working, Marie Osmond's quote, the Lord made us all out of iron, then he turns up the heat to forge some of us into steel. A load of bollocks. <laughs> well, there it is. That's Marie Osmond and Paper Roses. They're all at it now. They must be a granny and granddad Osmond. They must get in on the act sooner or later. At 26, it's Paul McCartney and Wings. The next tune-up is Helen Wheels by Paul McCartney and Wings. Wings, of course, were formed in 1971 by Paul McCartney. It's the sixth Wings single, and it's the follow-up to Live and Let Die. Uh, The song's 
about his Land Rover, really, and a trip from Scotland to London. Taylor, you've had an opinion or two on McCartney's 70s output, haven't you? Mm. Yeah, more than one or two. It's variable. <laughs> it is variable. Because um, you've, stu- you've stuck up for him on a, f- on a few occasions, haven't you? Yeah, because it's never less than interesting. You know what I mean? Even when it's terrible, it's interesting. Mm. Uh, and more often than you might imagine, it's actually quite good. Um, not a big fan of this one. It's like, it's, you know, he's got a cute pet name for his Land Rover, you know. Right, so to go with the one about, to go with the song about his horse and the song about Fungus the Bogeyman, you know what I mean? It's, and also, I don't, the, the, the great thing about this is they show the video. And first of all, like all videos on top of the pops in this period it looks like it's about 40 years old already like they always have the worst print it's like uh like footage of nuclear tests in the nevada desert <laughs> it's like this kind of terrible quality and the sound on it is awful what it's like if you have you ever seen vintage tv or those mm. uh channels that they have if you go through yeah, the, yeah. the high numbers on the on the free view you get these uh these sort of sub mtv video channels. they've always got the worst print uh, that they found in, under somebody's bed or something, and it, that's what this is like. <laughs> but it's the video is all it's, it's a terrible sort of faux jollity with yes, uh, like Linda doing the sort of stoned mugging into the camera and Denny Lane hating every minute on six bob yes. a week, you know, <laughs> uh, just oh, it's yeah, and Macca's weird sleazy unwashed 70s incarnation it's like unrecognizable mm. from the sort of smart well-groomed beautiful young man about town of the mid-60s yeah jane asher would not have gone near this geezer right this is this it's not one of his best i've got to be honest it's not it, this is no high 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 right or, <laughs> or or let him in the only thing it's got in common with that is his weirdo lyrics yeah. you can't even call them surreal because they're not trying to paint pictures in your mind or anything. They're like, it's he's ju- he's just saying anything, literally anything, to fit fill out the lines, um, and it's like a little window into his his the, the sort of stew of his subconscious. It's quite interesting. Simon, you're a uh, as you've said already, you're a you're, you're Beatles skeptic. Um, what about the solo output of the Beatles? Oh, yeah, I I am a Beatles skeptic. Um, but I quite like McCartney for what a dick he is, for kind of how how just sort of rubbish he is in so many ways. Like I suppose the most recent example would be that amazing campaign he did for veganism, <laughs> that that Meat Free Mondays thing, uh, where where he suddenly he suddenly puts on a sort of Sting style Jamaican accent and starts rapping and clicking his fingers and going, "You can do it right now, please." And this kind of stuff. It's absolutely amazing. Um, but uh, I also quite like the McCartney of the seventies. Um, this song is, uh, as Taylor says, absolutely terrible. Um, it's the follow-up to Live and Let Die, and it is no Live and Let Die. Um, no. But I, I just kind of just, I like the whole vibe you get off, off McCartney in the 70s, that he seems like a freed man. He's freed yes. from having to have records that get to number one anymore. You know, it's fine for him to put out a record that gets to number four or number eight or something. No one's going to care. This is his um, style council period then, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's exactly what it is. It's, it's McCartney's style council period and he looks like he's loving it. And I quite like that. <laughs> that means Linda's Mick Tolbert. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, Linda is Mick Tolbert. And, yeah, and uh, uh, 
yeah, they're, they're they're driving down this this country lane in a in a what is it, a Bentley or a Rolls? It's or in a roller, Rolls. in a roller, yeah. very yeah, irresponsibly but... indeed. It's <laughs> standing up and waving his arms around where he's supposed to drive. There's a fucking removals van behind them. It's like you want to watch what you're doing, mate. It's just, this is not this is not a good example to set to. But what what I love about that is that you know that car was clearly paid for by the Beatles millions, and then, yes. you know, and now he's just he's spunking it all away on on these records that that are a bit crap, and you know, but he's he's having a lot of fun, and um and I actually think Linda's the one to watch in this video. She does the, she does a bit of kind of Brian Eno like synth at one point, yes. you know, twiddling with this super expensive, just probably mind bogglingly expensive nineteen seventy three synthesizer, and giving a, a cheeky V sign to the camera. Yes. You know, on top of the pops, you know, shocking. Never mind Johnny Rotten. Yes, um, and the and the video cuts between them pissing about in the roller and uh, the band because Paul McCartney was very, uh, you know, really wanted to put over the fact that he's in a band again because he except, holds except up. There that. is no band because this is shortly no, after his entire band left him. The whole band, band walked out. Yeah, mm. they all walked out on mass because he paid them so little and was such a bossy boots um the all the only ones left the only people left out of his band were the one he was married to and the one who was now officially his songwriting partner and oh so that's why mccartney's playing drums in the video it's not like a little conceit it's like literally couldn't get anyone to do it no he played drums on the record he he played he played everything on the record except uh what uh denny lane played which was basically just rhythm guitar but which yeah. we never see in the video. We never see him playing. We just see him just sitting there or standing there. Well, we see Danny Lane with a patch of glitter on his forehead and a moustache. And I put it to you that this yeah. is the only point in uh, human history when a patch of glitter on the forehead and a moustache could be seen on the same face. Although it is a weird <laughs> moustache because the middle bit is missing. Did you oh, it's that? terrible, he's, isn't it? It's like the anti-Hitler. It's almost like he's yes. trying <laughs> to say he's as unlike Hitler as it's possible to get he's just got the moustache on the sides of his lips do you think paul mccartney looks back now and goes oh if if the beaklers had split up in 1968 i would have been the fucking biggest thing ever because all those tunes he gave to the beaklers right at the end he could have had for himself nah no he he just wanted to <laughs> okay he, he wanted to be in the beatles for his whole life didn't he He'd have, he'd have liked mm. nothing better, you know, despite all this sort of uh, uh, rationalisation after the fact, saying, oh, well, you know, we split up at the top. It's like, no, he, he would have, he, he, he would like to still be in the Beatles now. Helen Wheels moved up to number 17 and then stalled at number 12, the first wing single not to make the top 10 since Give Ireland Back to the Irish. A month later, they released the band on the run LP and would have 15 more hits before splitting up in 1979. That's Paul McCartney and Wings and Helen Wheels. We're all vibrating with excitement to that one. Have you done any Christmas shopping yet? No. Haven't you done it yet? Anybody done the Christmas shopping? It's not far away, is it? And you might want to get this one because it's gone straight in at number 17. Another singer-songwriter. This is a beautiful song. It's called Why Oh Why Oh Why from Gilbert O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan. Well, before Gilbert O'Sullivan, Tony tries to chat up one of the girls by asking yes. her if she's done her Christmas shopping yet. That's which right, is like yes. the dreariest chat up line ever. 
Um, and he also suggests that this song about a relationship breakdown would make a great present for somebody. Yeah, I would say, considering this is Christmas 1973, uh, no, ask for candles. Get candles. You're gonna, yes. you're gonna need them really soon. <laughs> Maybe he sent a copy to Tessa Wyatt. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as the song begins, two girls in the foreground awkwardly dance really fast before nearly being run over by a cameraman. I quite like that about this crowd. That you know, you see these people bopping really enthusiastically, um, like like it was like it was mouldy old dough or something like that that they're <laughs> dancing to. It's really inappropriate. I quite like that. They're, they're dancing to. They're, they're just vibrating with the sheer excitement of pop music inside their own heads. <laughs> and we're introduced to Gilbert O'Sullivan, born Raymond O'Sullivan in Waterford Island. This is his tenth single release. A year after he had two number ones with Claire and Get Down. It's also the debut of his new look after the original cloth cap appearance uh, and an aborted attempt to look like a 1950s college boy with a big G on the front, like he was a member of the goodies. And it's in at number 17. What we're saying about Gilbert O'Sullivan, chaps? He's got a really odd style. He, he sort of operates in this sort of unmatched shadow zone between... Uh, singer-songwriter and uh, comedy songs. Do you know what I mean? It's weird. It's, mm. All his songs are sort of on the cusp of being humorous, but they're not funny. They're just... They're like part witty and poised uh, and part clumsy and dumb. He says, uh, he says, Why in the name of God are you so angry? Could it be that you can no longer stand me? And it's you can, <laughs> you can imagine him writing that and looking, huh, feeling quite pleased with himself. I mean, it's mm. it's terrible. He says, "Why when you why when I kiss your lips do you astound me, saying that you won't put your arms around me?" This whole song, it's like he won't take the hint. You know what I mean? It's uh, mm. he, his his girlfriend's basically making it very obvious that she wants nothing to do with this. Partick Thistle centre half, nineteen seventy three, seventy four <laughs> season, um, but he's singing it with this complete naivety, and he does this weird, self satisfied grin between lines, mm. as, they, as they once <laughs> said of uh, David Crosby. Um, he's he seems very kind of pleased to be there, but it's a uh, it's it's quite a bleak song, really. It's yeah, terribly it's, bleak. It's, song. Uh, it's, it's, it's divorce pop, but it's being performed to 12-year-olds. This is the weird thing. You know, he's singing these lyrics about, you know, a relationship that's been probably uh, lingering on for at least 10 years and is really sort of very jaded now. Um, and he's singing it to people who have no idea of that, none of that kind of life experience. Yeah. And um, a lot of his lyrics are really depressing. You know, if you listen to Alone Again Naturally, God, it's about, yeah. you know, your mum and dad dying and stuff like that. You know, it's just really grim. Um, and, and you wonder what the selling point was here. He's not, he's not good looking. Um, like Taylor says, uh, he doesn't quite tip over into being witty or clever. And it's not a banger melodically, is it? So what's, what's going on? Are people appreciating the craft? Are they thinking, oh, it's, it's somehow classy and proper? I, I genuinely don't know. What do you reckon? <laughs> um, well, we, we, I mean, the Partick Thistle reference was uh, spot on, Taylor. I, I was going to go. I was going to go for. He looks now like a sensible Rod Hall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll tell you one thing. When when a pop star whips off their hat, it's quite a surprise that they're not bald underneath, isn't it? <laughs> so that that's the real shock here. You know, if 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 somebody becomes famous and they've always got a hat on, you think, mm. okay, you know, we're not stupid, we know what's going on there. Yeah. Look at Paul Simon, you know, he whips off his hat, you know. Elton um, John. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the, dr- the drummer um, out of Gene. Yeah, <laughs> Matt, yeah, Matt the Hat. Yeah, um, but yeah, there he is. He's got quite quite a decent uh, head of hair there. So he's he's put the hat on that looks like one of those Scottish Highland gonks. Um, you know, consciously as a as a fashion choice, yeah. and then he sort of thought better of it and whipped it off. Fair Did on him, Matt really. the Hat ever invite a girl back to his flat to groove on the mat? Every night, <laughs> never worked. Why do I have to cry myself to sleep seven days a week? Is this you now, or is this? Yeah, it was well, a bit, a bit, a bit of both. But it's that that can't be. I mean, take the hint, Gil. Life's short, and you get old fast. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the two inappropriately dancing girls hove back into view near the end of the song and have clocked themselves on the monitors. One goes to scratch at her nose and catches herself doing it and laughs. And that reminds me a lot of being on the bus in Nottingham because we have video cameras everywhere. And you see that you're on the camera and you go, oh, how long's the delay on this? So I'm going to do something and catch myself and see how long it is. And that's what she was doing, I'm sure. I would say that the that scratching the nose and bopping around manically might be somehow connected, but those are more innocent times. <laughs> Thing is, Al, we have those cameras uh, on the buses in London now. You'd be amazed. No. Yeah, except we don't have, a, we don't have a delay. <laughs> <laughs> Give it ten years and... Uh... <laughs> So this song went up to number 12 the next week and peaked at number 6. It was his last top 10 hit because he sued his manager Gordon Mills over his contract soon after this. Uh, And it wasn't resolved until 1982 when he received £7 million. Uh, He later went on to destroy hip-hop in 1991 when he successfully sued Bismarck for sampling alone again naturally, meaning that any future sampling had to be pre-approved and paid for by the original artists before being used, you fucking permy bastard. That was basically that was basically the Bosman ruling of hip hop, wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> it really was. That's lovely, isn't it? That's Gilbert O'Sullivan there. Look what I found. A little, or should I say, a big womble. Where do you come from, Womble? I come from Wimbledon. You come from Wimbledon? And what do you do? Well, we pick up litter, and we've been here all yes. day picking up all the litter from that lovely wedding yesterday. Have you really? Yeah. You're doing a marvellous job. What a big nose you've got. Yes, I've had six full <laughs> tidy bags today. Have you really? That's fantastic. Well, keep, keep going, because right now you can see the Wombles, of course, on BBC One television every day except uh, Tuesday, every weekday except Tuesday. Right now, though, it's new release time. That is called Roll Away the Stones from Up the Hoople and Thunder Thighs. Tony is joined by a Womble, but presumably Orinoco, who holds his throat so his head doesn't fall off. The great thing about this Womble is Tony says to him, where are you from? And he says, I'm from Wimbledon. And he actually sounds like it. I bet I'm the only person you've had on this show who's been inside a Womble. Oh. Yeah, I've actually been inside one of the actual Womble suits that were seen on top of the Pops. Uh, what happened was, uh, this is, again is, you know, a melody maker thing from the 90s. I went to EMI Records to uh, interview Errol Brown from Hot Chocolate. In fact, it wasn't interviewing. I was um, getting him to review the singles for us. Right. And we went in this conference room and um, 
after he left and we'd taken a few photos and me and the photographer just packing away, we noticed in the corner of the room there are four Womble heads just lying there, disembodied, wow. just the heads on the floor. Because they just had a comeback hit around that time. That's right. And, well, you've got to, haven't you? If you yes. see it there... You've got to put it on. So, uh, you know, I had my photo taken with this Womble head on. I thought, great, you know, just so I've got it for posterity. Next time next time I review the fucking singles from Melody Maker, guess which fucking photo no. we have <laughs> Yeah, fucking Tobamori here, you know. <laughs> oh, it smelled really bad, by the way. As you do. Expect. Yeah, they oh, do. Oh, God. Oh, I'm God sure only knows do. what they're doing, those. Well, they spend all their life picking up rubbish, don't <laughs> but, they? <It's>, uh... <laughs> I mean, the nearest I've come to that, Simon, is uh, I donned the head of News Bunny when I was freelancing at live TV. And that stank. Amazing. And I really wanted to nick it as well. I was working on this on this desk and I was kicking something underneath it. And I just thought, what the fuck is that? It's getting on my nerves. Looked underneath. News Bunny's head. Could have had it. Oh. I think I used to have a crush on Madame Cholet, you know. Really? I don't know how common that is for children of my age in the 70s, but, yeah, she seemed kind of exotic and sexy in a weird way, you know. <laughs> but also, like, she'd, she'd cook your dinner as well. Yeah. <laughs> they have internet uh, groups for people like you now, Simon. It's, it's, quite, it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of anymore. <laughs> I used to fancy uh, Maid Marion as a fox. And Robin Hood, I think that was my first crush. So have a threesome with her and the Cadbury's Caramel Rabbit. Yes! <laughs> Somewhere in a hotel suite in Britain right now, there's about 50 people, and they're all either dressed up as Madame Cholet, you know, <laughs> Maid Marion, or, you know, um, the, the News Bunny. Yes. <laughs> so Tony draws attention to the Wobble's big nose, which is a bit uncharitable of him, and the Wobble talks about cleaning up all the people's shit at the royal wedding. Six bags full. It would have been great if he'd drawn attention to the Womble's big nose. And the Womble had said, yeah, well, look at your teeth, you cunt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, he talks over the Womble really rudely. Like, he talks right over it. Appropriately enough, fluffs the link that he's trying to do, which is... Yes, uh, he does roll away the right. stones. But pop for young people and pop culture was weirdly socially conscious at this time, wasn't it? You yeah. know, you've got the Wombles uh, advocating environmentalism, and then you've got uh, Alvin Stardust teaching them how to cross the road and yes. all that. You know, it was it, it was none of this kind of wanton devil may care attitude that <laughs> pop culture has now. It was it was all about making you a better person in some way, and I quite like that. I think. Indeed, one thing I didn't approve of, though, uh, but Womble gets a proper handful of that girl next to him at the end, doesn't it? He's making good use of the things that he finds. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, Tony Blackburn introduces Mott the Hoople and their song Roll Away the Stone, not Stones, Tony. An amalgamation of two 60s bands from Herefordshire, the Solents and the Buddies, Mott the Hoople formed in 1968 to minimal success, and they were on the verge of splitting up in 1972 when David Bowie offered them All the Young Dudes, which got to number three. This is a fourth single, and it's the follow-up to All the Way from Memphis. I mean, if it wasn't for Alvin, this would, would have taken the whole show, wouldn't it? Yeah, this is their best record. I think. Yeah. I think it's their best record. Yeah. It's just absolutely brilliant. It's got everything. But what is going on with the vocal there? Did you notice this? That basically his mic is up, Ian Hunter, and mm. you know, they're playing the backing track, the seven inch single, and he's singing live over his own so you've got this kind of double yes. vocal. You've got the, the studio take and it's slightly bad, you know, version where he can't hear himself properly. It's it's this bizarre it's like sort of, you know, primitive karaoke or sort of hen night version of it. It's quite yeah. quite appropriate to the because part of the glory of this record is the 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 
earthbound nature of it. Do you know what I mean? If like Alvin Stardust is invoking these kind of demons and, and spirits, uh, the mob, it, it's, it's, it's Saturday night music, the whole point of it, you know, it's like, you got like a singer who looks like what Robert Plant looks like to a dog. You know what I mean? Just like, <laughs> like it's sort of like he's in a disguise or something. Um, and the, 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 their female backing vocal trio, Thunder Thighs, with a, a yes. self self deprecating name, and uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's fun. It's it's like this. What it says is that this is this is attainable. You know, this yeah. this amount does... this amount of joy and power and freedom is actually attainable. Because it does look like he's rounded up loads of people from a pub. And Thunder Thighs were sitting on one table with a cherry bees or whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh, come on, let's go on top of the pops. It'll be a laugh. I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of convivial music. And this is a real early 70s thing. You had things like Meet Me on the Corner by Lindisfarne. You had uh, See My Baby Jive by Wizard. And, uh, and, and you've got Roll Away the Stone by Mop the Hoople. And, you, you know, things like um, you've also got the theme from Whatever Happened to the Lightly Lads. All these mm. tunes, there's something about them that makes it feel like, you know, a load of people in power cut Britain um, going down the pub on a Saturday night with their arms around their mates, having a sing along. And it's, there's just something really lovely about that. I think, I think Mott the Hoople more than anyone convey that essence of convivial music. Yeah. And it is a lot of people as well. I counted 11 people on stage. <laughs> and what I like about them is they look like the spiders from Mars where everyone is Trevor Boulder. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. And it's the first sighting of um, really massive platforms, isn't it? In that one, though, um, I think the guitarist, has got these really, really long, right up to the middle of his thighs, white boots, and they're just... Don't just call him the guitarist here. Let's have the proper name. Aerial Bender. Aerial Bender. One of the Bender, greatest names of any, any band yes, ever. Is. is that Aerial, Aerial Bender. Bender? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Or did Ariel Bender join Mott after this point? Oh, that's a good question. I yeah, believe he that's... was in them at this point, though, because they'd had four hit singles uh, by this time. I think and he joined them. He was in Spooky Tooth, wasn't he, before? Uh, yeah, possibly. I should know this, really. Yeah. See, that's why I said the guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> Cover my ass. I want it to be Ariel Bender. Just just go with me on this. Uh, but, yeah, um, fuck it, yeah. Also, you know, we, we've got to talk about his book. Have, have we all read his book, Diary of a Rock and Roll Star? 
It's absolutely amazing. It's, yeah. you know, one of the, probably the mm. great um, rock memoirs. And it takes place over their uh, American tour around the time of um, All the Young Dudes. So it's the previous autumn. Mm. And they've been this kind of jobbing sort of pub rock band um, going around the UK for years and not really selling many records till David Bowie suddenly decides to take them under his wing. And uh, they're suddenly getting to tour America. And just... These these guys from you know the um, is it Hereford Shrewsbury from yeah, you know the, uh, yeah yeah from the west from the west Midlands there uh, the very west from the Welsh borders basically um, and they're there wearing this sort of lower league uh, English football shirts in this world of rooftop swimming pools and they're even freaked out by the idea of fresh orange juice it's, it's just <laughs> yes. the most wonderful thing to read I think everybody ought to read it and that book is you know what I've tried to get hold of that book it's rarer than Jeremy Kyle guest teeth. Oh, well, I've got an autograph copy, so in your face. Well, get you. Well, that'll be worth a pretty penny because um, I can't see any lower than 45 quid on eBay at the minute. And Amazon about the same. So, you know, keep hold of it, Simon. Yeah. Also, the, keeping in with the theme of tiny pop stars, did you notice the drummer's got the giant drumsticks, yes. like giant yes. comedy drumsticks, like, yes. you know, like it looks like something that should be hanging on the wall of a shop in Amsterdam, you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> uh, also, I, this is this is boring and probably it might not make the final cut, but I, the, are the sax players, and it's tragic that I even could recognise this, but... I swear one of the sax players is a bloke called Dick Parry, who played sax. He wasn't in Mott the Hoople, but he played sax on uh, all those Pink Floyd records. Like, you know those boring sax on like Dark Side of the mm. Moon and stuff? Uh, Dick Parry. Um, I'm sure that's him, in which case, leaving the Floyd session to go and do Top of the Pops with Mott the Hoople must have just been like... You know, you know when you get in and you don't even realise how uncomfortable your shoes are until you take them off. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's better. <laughs> That's fair. Now I'm in mock. But it's they they all look horrible. They all look really horrible. Yes. And so do Thunder Thighs. But they use it as a, a ticket to this wonderful freedom. Like when I was a young man, I was sort of quite vain and I was always trying to, you know, take you know, worried about my appearance and stuff. And it's it's a it's a cage. It's a horrible way to live, you know. Um uh, I've just checked, right? Can I just say, right? Ariel Bender is probably not. On, I've, I had to do it. He's yeah. probably not on this performance because no. get this: they recorded it twice. They recorded it once for the single with Mick Ralphs on guitar, and then they re-recorded it for the album "The Hoople" with Ariel Bender. So there we go. I was wrong. I hold my hands up. Oh. But he was there in spirit. Oh God, yeah. And of course, the other thing to mention about this is Thunder Thighs were the coloured girls on Walk on the Wild Side. Who oh, were they? Yes. You would think that Lou Reed in New York of the 70s could find some actual coloured girls. Mm. Oh, mind you, was it recorded in Berlin or something? I think I maybe his reputation got around. <laughs> not, not, a, not a PC fellow on the quiet, Lou Reed. So we're all in agreement that this is quite wonderful and just fucking brilliant. Just one of the greatest records of the 70s, I think. Yes. You know, I'd, maybe even even slight... Well, it's, it's neck and neck with all the young dudes for them, I think. Mm. I think this is better because I think this comes more naturally to them than all the, all the young dudes. All the young dudes, it's like... Yeah. It's fantastic, but they're, they're, they're wearing David Bowie's shoes, you know what I mean? This, this seems to just come from, you know, somewhere in their, in their Ross on Y guts. You know, so this song entered the charts at 28 the following week and it got to number eight, uh, their last top 10 single. 
Uh, Ian Hunter left the band at the end of 1974, formed a short-lived duo with Mick Ronson. Pop the Hoople and Come the Pfizer. And that, of course, is a new release. Right now, though, I want to introduce you to a marvellous singer, a marvellous actor. But right now, we're going to see him singing, the one that's gone straight in at number 23. Follow-up to Rock On, Lamplight, from David Essex. So, born David Cook in Plasto, London, David Essex spent the 60s as the lead singer of David Essex and the Mood Indigo before taking the lead in the West End version of Godspell in 1971. Two years later, he starred in the film That'll Be The Day with Adam Faith and Ringo Starr and he recorded Rock On, which got to number three in August of 1973. This is the follow-up and it's jumped 15 places to number 23. Did he fuck up the intro? Did you notice that? Yeah, but he can he can get away with anything, David Essex. Yeah, he can. Do you know what he I mean? Can, it's like he's that that perpetual smirk, that sort of you know, I'm all right, Jack smirk on anyone else would be the most punchable thing. Uh, but it makes him more likable. It's like an infectious smirk. Have you ever heard of such a thing? An infectious yes, smirk. Yeah. He's like the anti-Paul Nicholas. You know what I mean? I was going to say Paul Nicholas. He is the rich man's Paul Nicholas. Because if you compare and contrast those two, yes. yeah, you probably would want to punch Paul Nicholas, wouldn't you? Yeah, ne- never get tired I mean, of it. Look at look how much the girls love him in the front row. Oh, fucking hell, yeah. Oh, my God, the looks on their faces. Yes. There's one definitely staring at his packet while he's cocking his leg up. <laughs> He, he is the discerning team, teeny bopper's bit of crumpet, isn't he, David Essex? You can sort of see why, really. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's got it all going on, definitely. Yeah, he's sort of the Robin Williams of his era, isn't he? <laughs> but a likeable one still. Yeah, yeah. And let's face it, right, the elephant in the room, we all wish it was rock on that we're hearing. Yes, we? definitely. You know? Uh, which, you know, because you could go on about that for ages, go on about the yeah. weird, crazy production that sort of prefigured hip-hop and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But but this record's kind of weird in its own way, isn't it? Um, Lamplight. Mm. It's got it's got a really strange sound. It's almost a sort of big band jazz, a trad jazz noir. It's sort of, you know, it's got a dark, dark Dixieland thing going on, which I quite mm. like. Well, in its... In, the, in their own way, they're all really strange, all his early singles. They're, I mean, in a way, this is weirder because Rock On, you can at least trace it back to, uh, you know, Papa Was a Rolling Stone and records like mm. that. It's like that psychedelic soul stuff uh, kind of shrunk down to tiny size by a handsome wizard. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it, basically, it's what... Uh, it's what British white people have always done best in pop music, which is take black American music and do it a bit wrong and a bit stiff and a bit weird, but good in other ways and create mm. a new a new style. And it's like on Rock On, it was doing that in a really pure way. But in its own way, this is a stranger record because you, you can't trace it directly back like that to anything. Um, no. And a lot of his... There's other ones like this as well. Like my favourite is Stardust, which is mm. uh, sounds like a it sounds like a ghost of itself. You know what I mean? Or a, a record made by ghosts. There's something really empty and spectral about it. Um, this isn't his best one, but it's just it. I mean, it's not that the tune isn't that memorable. There isn't really much of a hook to it. Um, it doesn't sound that alien, but it's it's 
it is it passes un- the time nicely, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's 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 definitely weird and ear catching and unusual in the way that all his stuff is. Um, I think the one thing about David Essex is that it, if you were like a fifteen year old lad uh, and you had a little sister and she displayed a penchant for David Essex, you kind of understand it, wouldn't you? I don't think you'd get it so much if you, she was into the Osmonds. Yeah, and um, I think. Um, Danny Baker actually pretended to be David Essex's kid brother, and he used to get quite a bit of action in the seventies by doing that. And you can sort of see how how that that would rub off. Um, yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of charm. Certainly, that, that's it, isn't it? His charm is the word that, that David Essex has got. And yeah. also, I like the way that he is such a creature of the seventies. You can't imagine him existing in the sixties, and by the eighties, he just seemed like a fish out of water. He was like, yeah. he was David Essex from the seventies. Even yeah. you know, in in the very early eighties, where he's got that song, uh, "Me and My Girl Nightclubbing," which yes. is this kind of it's this kind of a bitter tirade against the new romantics, really. Where you know, mm. he's going um, teenage hero, fashion dummy weirdo. I like your pink lipstick, <laughs> and 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 it it it, it feels to me like. Um, Terry McCann um, turning up at the Blitz Club and sort of like, you know, looking around and thinking, oh, God, I, I don't get all this at all. <laughs> so the following week, Lamplight would go to number eight, would jump as high as number seven. It would stay in the top ten for seven weeks. That's not bad going. Um, the follow-up, America, would only get to number 38, but the follow-up to that, we're going to make you a star, ah-ha-ha, ah, was his first of his two number ones, and he'd be a chart regular up until the mid eighties. So yeah, David Essex, yeah. we're you know the, the panel's in agreement with him here, aren't we? Yeah, up until his cover of Ghostbusters on the on the the album Center Stage, which is <laughs> sort of a nadir of popular music, really. <laughs> but, and also, you know, his record. Um, it was only a winter's tale, just another yes. winter's tale. The the woman who lived next door to us when I was a little kid was a big David Essex fan. And one Christmas, you know how hard it is to get to sleep on Christmas Eve when you're a kid. Mm. She had the bedroom next door to mine, like in the next house, and she played Winter's Tale by David Essex over and over again until <laughs> oh, about no. one in the morning. I presumably she was pissed or something. Oh, what the CIA did with Noriega. Yeah, it was, it was yes. exactly <laughs> like that. Well, that's a rock on called Lamplight. It comes, of course, from David Essex. Right now, though, I must admit I was quite surprised because I thought this one was going to be this week's number one. But what do you know? It can't be bad. It's still stuck at the number two slot. Comes once again from the Osmonds called Let Me In. Ever since the day I left you, I tried, but I just can't get you. Spawned by George and Olive Osmond from the late 40s to the late 50s in Ogden, the Osmond brothers, Ken, 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 Ken and Donnie, started as a barbershop quartet in order to raise money for hearing aids for their two older brothers who were deaf. They made an appearance on the TV show Disneyland After Dark in 1962. Fucking hell, that's a name to conjure with, isn't it? And they became regular guests on The Andy Williams Show throughout the 60s. In 1969, they decided to become a pop band. And in 1971, they had a US number one with One Bad Apple. In 1972, Donnie had branched out as a solo artist and was currently number six in this charts with When I Fall in Love. 
1973, the Osmonds were undergoing two crises. Their appeal was waning in the US and Donnie's balls had dropped, which fucked up the band's harmony. But the combination of the band, Donnie, Marie and Little Jimmy scored 13 hit singles in the UK in this year alone. This is the third straight top five hit for the Osmonds and it's stuck at number two for two weeks. Chaps, speaking as middle-aged men, what is the appeal amongst young girls of the 70s for the Osmonds? <laughs> you know what, right? I think I, I think that they're an interesting compare contrast with David Essex because David Essex, you can sort of imagine that he might do something indecent to you behind the chip van at the fairground. <laughs> but, but you know, the Osmonds, absolutely no way. They're completely pre-sexual. Even the sort of twenty-five-year-old members, there's there's nothing remotely sexually threatening about them, yeah. and. To, to a certain um, age of female music fan, that that is quite appealing in itself, I think. Yeah, yeah, after David Essex, it's like all that cheek and daring and sass and all the life and dynamics of the record just drains away. And suddenly we're in upstate New York listening to a convicted fraudster dictating God's word from behind a curtain <laughs> off, a set, off a set of gold plates we're not allowed to see. What I mean is it's... It's not convincing, right? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be the one to say this because it doesn't suit my sophisticated image to make a joke like this. But when Tony Blackburn says this record is stuck in the number two slot, <laughs> he's not joking. I mean, it's a live. We're watching a live performance because uh, obviously they're the Osmonds and they can't go anywhere without being ripped apart. Um, I trust you've seen the the 1974 BBC series uh, of of Osmond's concerts introduced by Noel Edmonds. No, I, I, no? I hope you'll forgive okay. me. Not in its entirety, but my, my my research didn't go that far. Well, you, it, it's bizarre because you you look at them and they're there doing their kind of like the vaudeville routines and they're all you know taking the piss out of each other and like everything they say is just met with a barrage of screams as if they're riding on ponies naked. I, I saw them live about 10 years ago in Ipswich. And, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it was the same, except it was... Was that for know, work? Women my age. It, <laughs> what do you think? And, yeah, uh, it, it, was, it was women my age and older absolutely screaming at them. But Donnie wasn't even there. It was the right. rest of them plus a video message from Donnie about halfway through the show. <laughs> no. And um, the, the, the youngest member, obviously, little Jimmy, is, you know, at this point, he's about 50 or something. But, yeah, it's extraordinary. I, I actually entertained myself during uh, this, this uh, Top of the Pops clip by imagining the song being performed or, or, or recited by, uh, you know, maybe sort of darker characters. Like, just imagine it being intoned by Serge Gansburg singing <laughs> Let Me In or something like that, or <laughs> Nick Cave, Barry White. Or, or maybe being belted out by, you know, I don't know, uh, Pete Burns or, or uh, Holly, Holly Johnson or, you know, something like Man to Man featuring Man Parish. It takes on a whole different meaning. The worst thing about this record is it's got that smeared feel to it. That a lot You, you listen to it after all the, the British hits, right? And even the sort of beery, sort of uh, boozy British hits, there's a sort of sharpness to them, like Mot the Hoople, right? And this mm. comes on, it sounds like a, an airline commercial, you know what I mean? It's got that mm. sort of, that weird smeared American, uh, it's, 
The only good thing is it's got the nice little uh, synth part on it, played by Donnie, who in the yeah. video is uh, sunk so low behind the keyboards. He looks yes. like he's drowning and clinging <laughs> onto a bit of driftwood. Um, but He's very much the Linda Eastman McCartney of the Osmonds at that point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, at, at this point, it's all about... It's all about Donnie, isn't it? And you do get the feeling that it's right. We're going to do this tune, uh, and we'll make a film for it. But you know, can can we be in it as well? And can we just have Donnie just over there, hidden behind something? I guess it's like like the Jacksons in the early eighties, where you know yes. one of them is suddenly becoming this massive star, and, and the others it's just trying to hide their resentment behind these you know gleaming white teeth. Yeah, they mm. they sorted out Donnie's uh, stool that he sat on behind the keyboards. Go, there you go. <laughs> it's like one of those. Do you reckon they used to beat him up? Maybe they had fights afterwards. Yeah, I reckon. I reckon they sort of wrap him in a duvet or continental quilt, as it would have been at the time, and just <laughs> beat the crap out of him. So you know, so it didn't show up any bruises on his body. <laughs> and they kept it all below the neck. I reckon. Yeah. I think the one, the best thing Donny Osmond could have done was. At the same time as Michael Jackson's skin tone was changing, Donnie's started changing the other way. And so there'd be a point, maybe in, I don't know, 1983, where there'd be the absolute same skin tone before they went off in other directions. That'd be you know great, what? wouldn't it? The, 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 the whole Jackson's comparison is, is more than, you know, just the fact that they were brothers and all that kind of stuff. Have you heard this? There's a track by the Osmonds, uh, and obviously everyone goes on about Crazy Horses, which is, you know, fantastic kind oh, of, yes. you know, it's a, it's a total, you know, Utah Valkyrie, it's a Thor's hammer of a tune. But, but, um, there's this other one they had that wasn't a hit in the UK, but number one in the States called One Bad Apple. Do you know yes, that one? Yes. Absolutely. And it, it sounds exactly like Jackson Five. Well, it, it, was, it was originally it was written, written for the Jacksons. For it yeah, was offered yeah. to the Jacksons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, mm. it turned up about six months after the Jacksons had had a couple of hits. And, you know, for for all, you know, this, this horrible smeared sound that Taylor described really well there, they, they did still occasionally knock out a couple of absolutely fantastic tunes. I think Crazy Horses justifies whatever they did after that. Yeah. I think that is that is probably uh, it's one of my favourite tunes. I always imagine being a 15-year-old head and you're in your bedroom and you hear this amazing sound and you just think oh god is that sabbath or you know could that be i don't know i don't know fucking nazareth or anything like that and then you find out it's from your little sister's bedroom and it's the fucking osmonds and that would ruin you wouldn't it i wonder how they squared the kind of um ecological message of that song (laughs) with with the fact that the mormon faith uh instructs them to repopulate the earth as much as they possibly can yeah you know, yeah, it, it doesn't that, quite, it? yeah, it doesn't quite match up. Well, so speaking of which, the 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 sound of this record can, to some extent, be explained by the fact that they believe black people have second class souls. So it's <laughs> it's not really surprising that this is the sort of music they're going to come out with, you know. And uh, uh, miscegenation punishable by instant death uh, at this point and until 1978, when the civil rights ordinance went through, which meant that if you racially discriminated you lost your tax exempt status suddenly the Mormon oh. church looked deep within itself and decided actually <laughs> maybe black people were all right after all yeah hit them in the pocket the the big rhinestone pocket and they'll change their ways yeah i would suggest hit them where it hurts in their bodies but it's yeah <laughs> 
So let me in, hung on for one more week at number two, dropped down to number 10, moved up to number five, and then took six more weeks to leave the top 40. The band would have their only number one in the UK, loving me for a reason, the following year, and they were pretty much done by 1975. The rest of the band became producers for the Donnie and Marie TV show, sank all their money into building their own TV studio for it, and went bankrupt when the show was cancelled. There they are, they're my favourite group, so talented, aren't they? They're number two, of course, the Osmonds number called Let Me In, and from one that's at number two, let's go to a tip for the top. Once again, it's tip for the top time on Top of the Pops, and here really is a most beautiful, beautiful song. It's going to be a real smash. It's called Amorous from Kiki D. <laughs> Matthews started as a singer with a band in Bradford in the early 60s and became a backing singer for Dusty Springfield before launching a solo career in 1963. A couple of her late 60s singles were picked up by the Northern Soul crowd. In 1970, she linked up with Mitch Murray, changed the name to Kiki D, and became the first white British artist to be signed to Motown. This is her first hit record in a cover of a French album track written by Veronique Sanson the year before. It's quite racy, this song, isn't it? If you listen it to the is. lyrics, it's very, yeah. for the time, it's very go-ahead. Spiritual awakening and all that shit. Yeah. One thing I want to draw your attention to is it's part of Top of the Pops' tip for the top section, mm. which, to my mind, completely fucks with the formula. What's that all about? A you know, big, you want the chart hits. A big wad of money in a brown paper bag, you know what I mean? Oh, tip for <laughs> yes. the top. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, what a surprise, it's Kiki D. The BBC was obsessed with Kiki D. Yes. You know, I've noticed this. There, there were certain singers, and I think Patti Boulet is another one, that the BBC decided were going to be stars, whatever happened. They were going to just put them on variety shows, tea time, sort of, you know, comedy shows or whatever, doing a number, as often as they possibly could. Yes. Uh, even with Kiki D, it never quite worked. She had, you know, one hit with, mm. with Elton John and another sort of token consolation hit with Star in, in yes. the 80s. Um, but... She is so pebble mill. She's pebble mill to her soul. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes. I mean, this this song, it's a sort of sub-Olivia Newton-John, vaguely sort of country-tinged weepy. But it's you, you've got to wonder whose blackmail photos did she have? Why, why, why did the BBC insist that she was going to become this great diva to represent Britain against all the American divas? You know, the, to somehow fight the good fight against Rita Coolidge and Linda Ronstadt or something like that. I'd, I'd watch that. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's not a great record. I, I like the fact that they're trying to um, to write about sex in an adult way, but it's a bad yeah. adult way. It's uh, yeah. this is this isn't adult sex with Alvin Stardust. The sex that she's no. singing about <laughs> in in this song it was not on Alvin Stardust's mat. I can no. tell you that much. It was uh... adult sex with Alvin Stardust coming to the Dave Channel soon. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> after, after extreme fishing with Robson Green. Yeah. 
It's a dull record as well. The, you can always tell when a record's dull is when the drummer's trying to liven it up. If you yes. if you if you listen to this track, the the drummer keeps uh, putting in these fills and stuff, just basically trying to to fool you into thinking that it's not actually as slow and that the rate mm. of harmonic change is not as as slow as it actually seems. Um, yeah, it's there's there's not a lot to say about it really, is there? The whole, uh, the whole tip for the top thing interests me because I think we have a false memory um, mm. with Top of the Pops. And this is something that's been brought home to me by the uh, BBC Four repeats. Is that um, if you'd asked me about five years ago, I would have said that Top of the Pops in the old days was this pure, unsullied, democratic reflection of just whatever happened to be yeah. in the charts at the time, um, give or take people's availability to be on the show. But in fact, you know, um, throughout its history, they would try and you know give somebody a leg up you know foot foot on the ladder and there are loads of things uh, certainly in the 80s top of the pops that um they, they never made the chart e- even with the, the help of a totp appearance yeah you know there was no there was no reason for she, she wasn't this kind of hot new artist that the kids were demanding there wasn't yeah. graffiti there wasn't graffiti on the streets of london saying <laughs> put kiki d on the television it wasn't like you know no. it wasn't like susie and the banshees where people writing sign the banshees uh, on, on on london back streets you know uh, it, it was purely some kind of uh, some kind of handshake done in in a a smoke-filled green room. Yeah, she was probably on the two Ronnies or something the week after. The one thing you can say for this record, and probably the only thing you can say for this record, is that um, I Feel the Rainfall of Another Planet is probably the most out-there metaphor for spunk that has this <laughs> ever been in a hit record. I assume that's, it's, every other line in the song is about, is about her doing it. So I assume that's what it means. Right between your grandma's eyes. But this is the second song that's uh, not in the charts at the moment because Mot the Hoople were the under the new release section. Yeah, but at least they'd had three hits, you know, so yeah. they're kind of a chart act, weren't they? So this song entered the top 30 the next week at number 25 and it would get up to number 13. She followed it up with I've Got the Music in Me, which got to number 14. But when Dusty Springfield dropped out of a proposed duet with Elton John in 1976, Kiki filled in and got to number one with Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Meanwhile, the song was picked up in America in 1975. The lyrics were rewritten again. The title was changed to Emotion and Helen Reddy had a US number one hit with it. And I can guarantee there was no reference to otherworldly spunking there, Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) Britain's number one was arrested PC World in Bristol when it was discovered that the hard drive of the laptop he had brought in for repair contained 4,000 images of child pornography. In court two years later, he pleaded guilty to 54 incidences of downloading child porn and was jailed for four months. In 2006, he was jailed for three years for committing sex acts with two underage girls. His sentence was eventually reduced to three months and he was deported. After being refused entry by 19 different countries, he returned to the UK and was placed on the sex offenders register. 
In 2012, Paul Gadd became the first person to be arrested under Operation U-Tree and charged with raping a teenage girl in Jimmy Savile's dressing room. If he was convicted of attempted rape, four counts of indecent assault and one count of having sexual intercourse with a girl under the age of 13. He was sentenced to 16 years imprisonment and he remains in prison to this day. How do we talk about this? Obviously, there, there are um, uh, perfectly valid reasons why people uh, wouldn't want to listen to Gary Glitter anymore and would find just the thought mm. of it completely distasteful. And oh, well, I, well, you're a you're you're a glam D. You you play glam. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're a glam DJ. Yeah. Um, you do you play Gary Glitter? I do, uh, but I have to psych myself up for it beforehand. Um, uh, I, uh, I I sort of judge the crowd a little bit. And mm. decide if I can get away with it. The cop out, of course, is to play rock and roll part two, which is an instrumental, and uh, <laughs> you know, so it it just some, somehow seems to excise the evil man from the equation. Uh, but do you get requests? Never get requests. Out? But by the same token, I never get anyone complaining. Uh, I I've had them coming over and sort of whispering, "Oh, that was that was quite brave, nice one," or something like that, um, mm. and. You know, I I just try and judge it on a musical level that it is a storming sound um, that, and I I I went to see the the glitter band uh, or a version of the glitter band about uh, six or seven years ago, and it was just a jubilant, uh, liberated atmosphere that people were able to sing, punch the air, chant, stamp their feet along to these records without any kind of overtones of of, of, of guilt because you know as far as anyone knows that the glitter band themselves were innocent it's no wonder that we're living in a society which is practically defined by its inability to hold two ideas in its head at the same time in that uh, people seem unable to separate this bit of cultural confectionery from the crimes of the scumbag whose whose name went on it um, mm. it's for a start would you listen to Stalin's demo tape? Yeah, of course you would. I would. Um, it's separating the art and the artist is just the the first thing you have to do when you approach pop music. And secondly, it's not really art, right? That's not a. I'm not putting it down. I'm saying it's it's mm. something else. This is. I could understand it when all those Morrissey fans got upset when they said, "Oh, Morrissey's like a racist," you know. Uh, because they felt that he was reaching out and touching them somehow, you know, and it was like they felt like he was their friend. Um, from this distance, I'm not sure anybody feels like that about Gary Glitter. He's uh, he's a, an actor playing a part. He didn't have that much to do with the actual music other than fronting it. So there's no conflict there. It's, a, it's something which exists, right? It's a... His performance is hideously magnificent, and that exists. That's on the record. That's something in the world. And having a gap in the record is always worse than facing up to what should go in that gap, always. On top of which, and this is in no way a defense of the the cunt, everyone creative has got something wrong with them. Right, from the the worthless shit that we spew out, all the way to the the great artists, right? They they wouldn't be doing it if they didn't have something wrong with them. And sometimes that something is benign, and sometimes it's completely monstrous. And I think the thing with Gary Glitter, and the same with all the U Tree DJs, nobody can 
forgive them for the gap between how creative they were and how appalling their fatal flaw turned out to be, right? Like, everyone knows that John Lennon used to hit his wife, right? But because he's John Lennon, he gets away with it. If he'd killed his wife, maybe that would start to turn it a bit. You see what I mean? It's all, there's well, all Phil this Spector stuff killed someone, and people still listen to Phil Spector records at Christmas, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. This this is something I've learned that it's impossible it's impossible to expect consistency from people with their attitude to this. Um, you know, everybody. It's not actually. It's it's not even a case that everyone has a different breaking point and everyone has a different threshold. It's that their threshold is jumbled and all over the place. So you know, um, <clears throat> somebody might find the idea of listening to Gary Glitter completely beyond the pale, but they'll still listen to Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones or Elvis Presley mm. or Jerry Lee Lewis or and we all know what what, what those Chuck guys Barry. did. Yeah, yeah, Chuck Berry. Um, and you know, it, it it'd be great if if everybody could be at least consistent and say, well, I draw the line here. But they don't even yeah. do that. It's not even a line. It's a zigzag. I think the one thing we can all agree on is we we don't want him to get our money, right? That's mm. that's probably the the one uh, that you can like hammer that into the sand, and nobody's gonna. We don't want him to to get our money. Um, so yeah, don't go out and and buy. Gary Glitter records. Luckily, we live in a world where you don't have to go out and buy a Gary Glitter record if you want to hear it. So, he's, he, he was never loved for himself. He was I don't loved- know about that, you know. I think there was, there was a time in the 80s where, you know, he was this kind of pantomime dame and uh, he was viewed very affectionately by a lot of people. And th- this is why, you know, he would do the sort of young person's rail card advert and stuff like that. And he was doing these every Christmas. He'd do the Gary's gang show um, at, at Wem- Wembley Arena, you know, not a little theatre. He would fill Wembley Arena with people who wanted to see that. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think um, in some ways people felt more let down. When it turned out, when he turned out to be a wrong un, than than if it was somebody whose whole public image was quite kind of sleazy and you know wrong in the first place. Someone started on me the other month for uh, mentioning Gary Glitter in a pub quiz. I did a picture round of um, celebrity, well, pop stars and what the real names were, and Gary Glitter was there. And I'm giving out the answers, and I say Gary Glitter, and this pisshead had been in. And uh, the minute you heard the word Gary Glitter, he just kicked the fuck off and started shouting that Gary Glitter was a paedophile who had sex with kids and and all that kind of stuff. You should have said, really? Yes. Well, I said said many things to him. At first I asked him to to leave it be, and then I just told him to fuck off over the microphone, which isn't always the best thing to do. And then uh, he started going on and saying, I'm going to fucking kick the shit out of you because you played Gary Glitter songs all night. And I... And I hadn't. And uh, the, the, the landlady grabbed hold of him and was dragging him out. And he said, oh, he's played Gary Glitter. And she said, oh, it's a, it's a fucking pub quiz. And Gary Glitter's part of our fucking musical heritage. Now, fuck off. <laughs> and uh, that's how that tune went down. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Gadd was born in Banbury, Oxfordshire, moved to London at the age of 16 and changed his name to Paul Raven. He was signed by Parlophone in 1961 and released a handful of flop records produced by George Martin. 
1964, he was working as an assistant and warm-up man on Ready Steady Go until he joined the Mike Leander show band. He had another go at a solo career in the late 60s as Paul Munde. Then in 1971, he hooked up again with Mike Leander and released Rock and Roll Part 1 and 2, which got to number 2 in the UK and number 7 in America. This is his sixth single, the follow-up to Leader of the Gang, and has gone in straight in at number 1, the third of four singles to do that in 1973, and only the eighth to do so. And what an introduction. Turning around on that massive heart in his uh, in his silver boots. And I would wear those boots, by the way. I would tell you. In fact, his entire outfit, I would happily wear. It's it's quite something. Simon Spangle. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, I should have been a glam rock star of the 70s. Um, I've got to say, um, I'm the leader of the gang I Am uh, by Gary Glitter was the first single I ever bought. Um, right. Uh, I was, uh, yeah, I, I, I was five years old and my dad, who was a complete music freak, used to drag me along to record shops with him and make me sort of wait around while he's uh, leafing through sort of uh, American psychedelic and country rock albums. And I was getting bored and fidgety and he said, all right, all right, all right, I'll get your record, what do you want? And uh, that's what I chose. And uh, um, I think, you know, he, he just quite liked the fact that I was interested in music at all. So he then bought mm. me um, I Love You, Love Me, Love, the follow-up. And I think I had, you know, about four or five Gary Glitter singles. that They would have been the first records I owned. So it's very much kind of shaped my idea of what pop music is and what, what, what it sounds like. The review for the NME. A th- this is Charles Shaw Murray. A thoroughly reprehensible record with an unsettling resemblance to a drunken working men's club singing a 50s do-wop ballad. My informants tell me that Gary is going to use this song to strip to on stage, which could result in the most horrifying piece of overexposure since Watergate. The thing is, everything that Charles Shaw Murray says there is accurate, except yeah. it's a brilliant record. <laughs> you know, yes. like all the way through, I'm thinking, you say that like it's a bad thing. You know, because yeah. it is, it's it's stripper music. That's exactly what it yes. is. It, it doesn't have the same beat as the other. It's not a terrace stomp like Glitter's other records. It is this mm. kind of sleazy burlesque kind of feel to it, isn't it? And I like that. Yes. And it doesn't bear a resemblance to a, a boozy working men's club version of a 50s do it, But it is that. That's what it yeah. is. It's yeah. and, and it's proud of it too. Yeah, the enemy seems to be very down on glam. Uh, back in the day, well, the music press in general, I, I think, didn't know, didn't know what to do with it because, yes. uh, you know, um, they they basically most people on the music press in the early seventies had come out of the sixties underground. They'd come out of things like you know, International Times and Friends and yeah. Oz and st- like Charles Shaw Murray was was from uh, he'd written for Oz and stuff yeah. like that. So they they're all sort of Afghan coated, you know, Afro haired heads, you know, and. Uh, the idea that, that music could be something instant and fun aimed at teenagers was anathema to them at this point. Also, yeah. also, a lot of the glam people had been around in the 60s and they'd either been around as uh, hippies like Mark Bolan mm. and, uh, and Bowie, you know, trying to do uh, acoustic psychedelic music, which nobody was really buying or, or you know... It, so they thought, oh, okay, now these guys are sold out. You know, oh, these guys couldn't make it now. They've sold out. Or they were around like uh, Gary Glitter uh, as sort of like old hacks, you know, stomping the boards, trying, you know, for like relics from another era. And now, oh, they've returned. You know, now they're back. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Psych- you, psychologically, those people, it was like, oh, we're going back to the bad old days now. You, know? you, you had exactly the same thing 10 years later um, in the New Romantic era where um, – 
you know, a lot of the people in the music press were all punks. And a lot of the pop stars coming through were sort of discredited punks who never made it first time round. Yeah. Like Adam Ant. Adam Ant being the obvious example. Adam Ant, in a lot of ways, was, was a glam rock star just 10 years too late. Mm. And, uh, you know, yeah, people in the music press were like, what, him? Really? You know, this guy that, that we all laughed out of town a few years ago. And, and here he's, he's the biggest thing going. Um, so, you know, that. You, you you can't uh, discount that kind of sheer resentment. I think. Mm. So the actual performance, it's uh, it's your standard. This is how we know Gary Glitter, isn't it? Um, it, it is an incredible sound. Um, I mean, obviously two drummers, right? First of all, um, yeah. but also you've got fuzz guitar and sax playing the same melody. Yes. Fuzz guitar, sax, and the <clears throat> bass. I think all playing the same melody at the same time, mm. which is you know a re- really powerful thing. It's the look of shock on his face is is the thing yes. which uh, I, I hesitate to use a word like wonderful about him, but you know, um, I, th- I think in terms of performance, you know, it, it really is quite quite a dazzling thing. The way he's, I mean, God knows how. how do you know how old he was at this point? I think he was in his uh, early thirties. Yeah, I think he's got a little bit older than Alvin Stardust, even. Yes, um, yeah. and and he's he's not he's not a thin man, and he's not a pretty boy. Um, no. but but there he is acting sexy. It's a bit like um, when uh, Oliver Reed turned up on the word and started <laughs> taking his clothes yes. off. You know, yes. um, it's a it's yeah, but but he he carries it off with just the sheer kind of bravado of it, and you know the rate the arched eyebrow and, and the look of shock and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And um, I don't know. I I think I think it whatever else we may think about him, um, it it takes some kind of you know. Um, bulletproof balls to, to you know go in front of national you know a national TV audience and act like you are God's gift when you're not mm. <laughs> if he if he did actually have bulletproof balls it might be safe for him to go out in public now <laughs> <laughs> so I love you love me love would stay at number one for four weeks and would be knocked off the top spot by Merry Christmas everyone and hung in at number two for three further weeks it was the biggest selling single of 1973 and sold an estimated 1.14 million copies. It was the first UK platinum record by a British artist. His next five singles made the top ten and his career pretty much petered out by 1976. And, uh, yeah, all that bad shit that happened afterwards. Right now we have Barry Blue and Do You Want to Dance to dance to it, Pan's People, and we have to say goodbye, but be back with us at the same time next week for another edition of... Top of the pop. See you then. Bye. Formed by five members of the Beat Girls, a dance troupe on the mid-60s BBC Two programme, The Beat Room, Pan's People changed their original name, Dionysus's Darlings, and made their <laughs> debut on top of the box. Did you not know that? Dionysus's <laughs> no, Darlings. I didn't know that. How I, would, I, I would have preferred Crom's Crumpet would have been more <laughs> suitable, I think. They made their debut on Top of the Pops in 1968. As we've said before about Legs and Co and Zoo, their role was to dance to records that had no video when the acting question wasn't available. Uh, they're in bikinis with belts, with different colours, with apples on their arses. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of what anthropologists would describe as uh, presenting. <laughs>
in this routine. Yeah, I think it's actually strawberries on their asses. Not is that, it? Not that I was looking that closely <laughs> or anything. Uh, strawberries would make more sense, wouldn't they? Why is that? Because, uh, yeah, Simon, what do you think about pants people? <laughs> I think I think the existence of pants people and the way that grown up men uh, in my family and in, uh, and of my acquaintance used to talk about them made yes. me wonder about myself whether I was ever going to never mind be heterosexual but just be sexual because just the the sexual aesthetic of the 70s it was people would talk about oh look at them they got legs up to their armpits and I used to think that that's a hideous image you've just <laughs> painted there well and it, it and and there was this whole kind of and blondes are very big it was a, you know everyone had to be yes. blonde it's blondes with legs up to their armpits was, was the sort of sexual aesthetic of the 1970s and I I just didn't get it and I thought well maybe one day something will happen and I'll grow into that and I, I never did, you know. Obviously, I found other things attractive when, when that time came for me. But um, I, so it's still now when, when I look back at this, and and I assume it's there for the dads, you know. Um, oh, it's dad time, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, they're there in their gold um, stilettos and their uh, multicolored um, one-piece swimsuits, and mm. yeah, it's it's a whole lost world to me. And I I wonder now if young men watching that find it at all arousing or or if they like me feel alienated by the desires of you know two or three generations previous yeah because i fancied the arse of pants did you when i was five (laughs) yes i did yeah i wanted to marry all five of pants people and paula wilcox that was my goal (laughs) in life seriously i used to i used to fancy paula wilcox as well she's lovely yeah i quite like neris hughes that's all i can throw in there it's Those it's a bit one. creepy, isn't it? How when you look back at the first women on TV that you fancy as a young heterosexual man, they are quite mumsy, often quite mumsy. <laughs> yes. But it's not something you want to dwell on, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually think Neris Hughes looked a bit like my mum. Now I think about it. Oh shit! <laughs> We're into some dark. And territory. mine as well. <laughs> but you know, the the name Pans People se- seems to kind of. Um, uh, um, invite and offer uh, a whole realm of paganism. You know, it seems to go back yeah. to the age of Aquarius or something like that. But yeah. but the, the reality is a bit more tawdry. It's basically it is, yeah. five prospective Rod Stewart girlfriends. No, it was back to <laughs> it was back to the age of uh, age of paganism when everyone pranced around in uh, strawberries on their asses. Uh, it's no, there's there's something very upfront. There's no pretensions there. They're doing their aggressive pointy finger routine. Um, and there's there's no pretension to it. It's basically just saying, look at this, look yeah. at look at this, <laughs> as, for as <laughs> for as long as you like. Just stare at this, stare and at these women. Do you, do you think it helped the song in general? I mean, it'd be great to get some stats on whether the song tended <laughs> to go up or down after one of these performances. Yeah, that's true. But it's a very it's a very suitable song, isn't it, for Pan's people because. The lyrics are, do you want to dance? 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 And Pan's people clearly do want to dance. Yeah, there's no rain from another planet going on there. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. I would, um, I would, I would suspect that, that by the Thursday, they maybe didn't want to dance as much as they had by the Monday, <laughs> uh, going on what I know of their, their rehearsal schedule. <laughs> it's, but it's a great record, though. It is a great. It's a, we haven't really 
mention the. No, we're go. We're going to do that. But, be, but before we do so, I just want to point out the other thing I noticed during this uh, during this bit. That while all this is going on, the camera will pan back. So you've got this amazing contrast between Pan's people and reality, <laughs> and the dowdy school disco. But also, you've got the wombles in the crowd. And he's just staring off into the distance as if he's had a premonition about what's going to happen to Gary Glitter. Under the costume, the Womble is wearing a bright red swimsuit, just waiting for the chance, you know. (laughs) But also, remember they used to uh, look, they used to see out of a bit of gauze in their neck. So the Mm. direction in which the Womble's eyes are pointing is not necessarily where the man inside is is yeah. looking. He might have been using that Womble costume like people used to use mirrored shades, you know, to like ogle people without the, you know, yeah. when they first brought around when they first brought out wraparound sunglasses, they were called yes. girl watchers, right? The implication <laughs> being that you can now ogle women on the street without them realising that you're doing it. It's all a bit creepy. I think under that Womble costume, he's just twisted the head a little bit to one side. Yeah, you reckon? Yeah, oh yes. Uh, Okay, so anyway, the song they're dancing to is Do You Want to Dance? by Barry Blue. Born in London, Barry Green became a professional songwriter at the age of 14 for Norrie Paramore, who was Cliff Rich's producer. In the mid-60s, he played bass for a local R&B band who'd later become a Uriah Heep. And then he re-signed as a songwriter in 1970, teaming up with Lindsay DePaul to write Sugar Me. In 1973, he signed to Bell Records under the name Barry Blue. And this is his second release, the follow-up to Dancing on a Saturday Night, which got to number two in July of that year. It's currently at number nine. I'm actually very fond of this kind of dog shit glam pop um, yes. of of that era. You know, other thing, other examples being bands like Kenny with you know, um, the Bump and uh, uh, Fancy Pants stuff like that. There, there's, there's there's something really please pleasing about it, and um, and very very British. Um, and uh, I I I don't know if it was I I mentioned before how uh, things like My Kukachu and the Gene Genie are cut from the same cloth. But mm. I don't think you can really say it of this. I don't know if it ever was a gateway drug to kind of you know, <laughs> clever glam or, or, you know, art rock <laughs> at all. It was just pure foot stomping. You know, it was, it was paving way for shawaddy waddy, if anything. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. I don't know about that. I think that there's something weird and futuristic about this record, you know. Yeah. Even though it's obviously got it is even though it's obviously got one foot in cabaret or whatever or, you know, in showbiz. There's there's definitely something kind of cold and pounding about it which you don't really get with a Suwadi Wadi record or a Kenny record. There's uh I mean a lot of this uh a lot of this Bell record stuff has got that weird weird feel to it. I don't know if it would have sounded like that at the time, right? I don't know. Mm. I think if if you were listening to, you know, For Your Pleasure by Roxy Music and then you listen to Barry Blue, I think, you know, it would just sound like a dumb pop record. But looking back, there's there's definitely something kind of frosty and intriguing about the sound of this record. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I suppose um, the more the more inventive minds of, of, of uh, more recent years who've drawn upon glam... Um, they've tended not to sort of go back to the clever stuff, and they often have 
drawn upon this kind of dumb foot stomping thing. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of people like Goldfrapp and Peaches and Marilyn Manson and people like that. They've gone straight for the jugular for this, this kind of, like I say, dog shit glam pop, um, to, to find something raw that they can manipulate into, um, a, a futuristic sounding record. Um, as, as opposed to the, the, the more kind of intricate work of, say, Roxy or Sparks or Bowie. Mm. I mean, to me, it's just a, a really early youth club disco record. You know, do you want to dance? Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's what it's got in common with a lot of those records from that time. A lot of these sort of British white records, there's no soul to it at all. It's yeah. not, not even the suggestion of soul, um, mm. uh, which makes it quite interesting. I mean, it's a it's a dance record, but you don't really know how to dance to. Yeah, there's I mean, no no funk, to? nothing in it. The, is... Would you do the mud rocker to it? Would you? Yeah, just a stomp. I mean, there's there's no nothing syncopated or you know no. none of the stuff you would normally do if you were making a dance record. It is just a stomp. But I suppose yeah. that the sheer repetitiveness of the title and the chorus um, does, in a way, prefigure um, house records and rave records. Uh, mm. of the late 80s and early 90s that, that just had one sentence repeated over and over and over in yeah. this kind of remorseless grinding down that just beats you into submission. So I, I suppose it, it does have a bit of that about it, even if it doesn't really have anything you could call a groove. It went no further than number nine, and the follow-up, School Love, <sighs> got to number 11, and his singing career was done by 1974, but he went on to produce Heatwave, and he wrote or co-wrote All Fall Down for Five Star. I Eat Cannibals for Toto Coelho. Really? And the, yeah, 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 yeah. That's incredible. And the, dis- <laughs> and the disco hit Devil's Gun for CJ and Company, which was the first record ever to be played at Studio 54. That's quite hell. a CV. That really is, genuinely. Not being ironic, that is great. Yeah, and in 1989, he went under the pseudonym Cry Cisco and released the dance tune Afro Dizzy Act, which just missed the top 40, so he, he could have had another run there. But yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I, what, I think what we found in this edition of Top of the Pops is like virtually everyone, bar Marie Osmond, were all at it in the mid-60s, and their careers were just coming to fruition now, and then yeah. they all went off and did mad shit. But that was what, it, that was what 1973 was. There was Bowie... Uh, Elton John, Mark Bolan, uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, mm. Rod Stewart. All these people, they've been around for bloody years. They just, uh, yeah. you know, they didn't make it until they were 25. Yeah, and there's no, bar Donny Osmond and Marie Osmond, there's no teenagers involved. Yeah, that's it. So, yeah, weirdly, um, however sort of conservative and cheesy they may, have, they may have sounded, the only genuine young people in the show are the yeah. Osmonds. Yes. And all the music that's aimed at young people is... Made by, you know, 30-odd-year-old postman. Uh, but it also, just like the last time we sat here, uh, no black people on this top of the Yes, box. I know, Ooh. absolutely no black people. None at all. And it's not as if the early 70s was not a golden era for for uh, black music that was singles-based. Uh, it absolutely was, but none but of it. But if you look at that chart, I mean, uh, off the top of my head, going through that top 30, or only one I can recall, and black act I can recall is the Detroit Spinners at number 10. Yeah. With mm. uh, Ghetto Child, I think it is. There's, there's nothing else, which is very odd. No reggae. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's a bloody Brexit. That's what the chart's going to be like again. Just you yes. watch. <laughs> so, what's on now then? BBC One follows up with Mastermind from the University of Reading and David Attenborough's nosing around a graveyard in Indonesia. BBC Two is asking if the Channel Tunnel is anything to get excited about and ITV has an episode of Beryl's Lot, a sitcom with Robin Asquith that I know absolutely fuck all about. So this was this was pretty much the highlight of the whole day on the telly. So what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow, chaps? Do you know what? I reckon Alvin Stardust. Um, I mean, mm. it's obviously it's easy to go back and uh, uh, sort of sort of second guess or, or, or maybe uh, you know um, airbrush it a little bit and say, oh, I would have been really cool uh, in yeah. 1973. I was five years old and. Uh, I, obviously, I can't remember what I talked about the next day, but if I did, I would like to think at least it was Alvin Stardust because that is just really unsettling and creepy and larger than life, and he does look like some kind of perverted superhero, and it mm. would mess with your brain seeing that. Um, maybe Gary Glitter not so much because he'd already had a hit. You know, we were, he yeah. was already a bit of a household name, but yes. suddenly this guy turns up in black leather and black latex, a rival, if you will. Yeah, yeah, in black. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you know it's it's. The anarchy in the UK of creepy British glam. <laughs> Taylor. Well, I was only one, so there was no playground for me. Um, what? Yeah, I got nothing to add really. I, I agree with Simon. So yeah, just let's let's move on. Okay. So what are those records will, will we be buying on Saturday? Essex, Stardust, Mott, Blue. I couldn't afford bad, all it? of them, that's but yeah, that is for one week. Yeah, that's a that's a, a good haul. Do you know what? I've already got most of them, but I am going to go out and at least download the David Essex one because I'm not really that familiar with it, and mm. it's got something to it that I think is going to bring me back to it. His whole first album is amazing. Is mm. it? It's he's not really an, an album's artist, but his first album is is pretty pretty great all the way through. So what does his show tell us about 1973? And these people were the same species as us, but that's about it. <laughs> and they knew how and they knew how to respond to austerity as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They didn't start, you know, getting mean spirited and fucking, you know. They were they just got got out of the baker foil and had a party. Yeah, I I think he's right. I think Taylor's right. Um I think in the same way that um the kind of uh, uh, flamboyant pop of the 80s was a response to the Cold War and the absolute certainty that we were all going to die in a nuclear holocaust. Mm. Um, I, I do think that uh, glam rock and glam pop was a response to uh, the three-day week and having to um, keep all your water in the bath all week and you yeah. know, ration it and that kind of stuff. Well, um, if you've got to have a three-day week, that means you can have a four-day weekend. Well, yeah, I like I like your optimism, and I think that is shared by the hit makers of '73. Well, I think that brings proceedings to a close. Uh, thank you very much, chaps. I've really enjoyed sitting down and and chatting with you, Taylor. Thank you very much, sir. No problem, Simon. Please come back again. You've been an absolute uh, joy to to chit and chat to. Ah, oh, you're welcome. I'd um, love to. 
Good skills. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for us. Um, don't forget that you can uh, go on our website, which is www.chart-music.co.uk. And we've got a Facebook group and we don't bother with Twitter because we just don't give a shit. This has been Al Needham inviting you all to come back to my flat and groove on my mat. <laughs> <laughs> Sharp music. the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market